Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the DC Insider Podcast, What Employers Need to Know. As you can tell, I am not David Fortney. I am sitting in for David today. This is Nita Beecher, also from Fortney Scott. And I am delighted today to be joined by two of my colleagues from Fortney Scott, Leslie Silverman. Leslie, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Well, Nita, it's wonderful to be back. And I'm always happy to be here when we're talking about my former agency, the EEOC, and what it's up to. And Savannah Shuntuk. We are delighted to have Savannah with us. It's been months, Savannah, since you've been on. I know, and I'm happy to be back. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, Savannah, as our AI expert, we're really thrilled to have you here. So what we wanted to talk about today really is AI and employment law. And there was a hearing this week with EEOC on that very topic. And Leslie, as a former commissioner and a former vice chair of the EEOC, Can you talk a little bit about why EEOC has these public hearings and, you know, why they had a public hearing on AI in particular? Absolutely. Well, as you know, one of the commission's responsibilities is policymaking or developing. And they hold commission meetings for a whole variety of reasons, and in some cases for multiple reasons, often to call uh, public attention or increase awareness to an issue or to show that they are taking the issue seriously, especially when Congress is bearing down or another agency is getting into their area. And they also do this as a way to gather information from the stakeholders and experts on new and emerging issues. And they often hold meetings like they did this week at the very beginning when they're looking at an issue or sometimes in the middle of looking at the issue or when I was at the commission right before we issued guidance. I do think this is all about guidance. And this meeting is not actually at the outset because the commission actually held a hearing on AI, although they called it big data, back in 2016. And that was when Jenny Yang, who now runs the OCCP, was the chair of EEOC. And it was at the behest of Vicki Lipnick, who was a commissioner at the EEOC at the time. So this is not the first time they've been at this rodeo. Leslie, I think it's interesting. Last week on the recording, you talked about the EEOC's strategic enforcement plan. And is this not one of the topics? It is, in fact, one of the topics. It's mentioned repeatedly through the strategic enforcement plan as an issue the agency is going to focus on. And for all of the reasons I just described above, to reclaim the issue, to tell Congress they're working on it, to alert the world. So this is just another way to get to it. Well, Savannah, you know, you have been one of the experts in the firm on the whole issue of employment and AI. Can you start by telling us a little bit about the hearing and who participated in the hearing? I'd love to. This hearing was actually called the Navigating Employment Discrimination in AI and Automated Systems, a New Civil Rights Frontier. 
And it's part of the EEOC's artificial intelligence and algorithmic fairness initiative that they kicked off back in 2021. And during this hearing, they heard from a dozen experts, primarily academics, so folks who were law professors, but also professors in the data science area. And there were also some individuals who spoke who represented advocacy organizations. So the AARP and the ACLU sent folks to speak. And additionally, there were a couple of practicing attorneys who spoke as well. You know, Leslie, I felt it was very interesting that there were not any vendors at this particular hearing. What were your thoughts about that? Well, I didn't even get a chance to have my own thoughts about that because two of the Republican commissioners on the commission actually brought it up and raised concerns about the fact that there weren't any vendors on the panels. Well, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the reasons why perhaps vendors weren't there. But Leslie, with your experience, what do you think was the biggest takeaway that employers should think about from this hearing? Well, Nita, I think the big takeaway is that the commission is not going to touch you guests, at least not directly. And I think that needs a little bit of explanation for some of our listeners. When I say you guests, I'm talking about the uniform guidelines on employee selection procedures. So, hence, you guess, it's a mouthful. Sometimes they're also called the Uniform Guidelines. And they are a set of guidelines that EEOC, along with four other federal agencies, came up with. They developed and they adopted these guidelines back in 1978, which employers can follow to determine whether employment selection procedures, such as hiring, retention, and testing, are lawful, that they don't violate discrimination laws. But to comply with them, there are a fairly complex set of procedures that you use to validate, you know, your selection devices or whatever you're using and to be able to demonstrate that they're job related and consistent with business necessity. But you don't have to use them if there is no adverse impact. So if no adverse impact, then we don't need to validate under the guidelines. And one of the issues that's been front and center, and I think really the highlight about you guessed during this whole meeting, was about this four-fifths rule. In fact, many of the experts at the hearing talked about the four-fifths rule, and it's supposed to be a rule of thumb to determine whether or not there's adverse impact. But what happened at the hearing is that the commission heard from these experts who said that the developers of these AI tools are applying it and they never go beyond the four-fifths rule. They never look for adverse impact. That's really important, Leslie. I think in Savannah, uh, you can jump in here as well. I think the idea that there is this rule of thumb that was developed in 1978, which I know is a long time ago because it was the year I graduated from law school, and they're still using this to determine whether or not their AI tool, in fact, has adverse impact and not going any further. And I think that's an area, don't you think, Leslie, we could expect to see some guidance from EEOC? We will absolutely see guidance from EEOC. In fact, it was the very first question right out of Chair Barrow's mouth. If I could just jump in, I was at an ABA conference last spring where Chair Burroughs spoke, and she was also raising this issue about the four-fifths rule not being the be-all, end-all of disparate impact determinations. So I very much agree with you that this will be a source of guidance, and, and I think sooner rather than later. 
The interesting thing for those of us who live in the OFCCP world is how no employers that I know of who have to do affirmative action and do adverse impact use the four-fifths rule anymore. They all use two standard deviations because now we have such sophisticated computers. It's interesting that the vendors of AI, which is all computer-based, think they can get away with using the four-fifths rule. Exactly. And that was what came up through the meeting and through the testimony, which is also worth looking at. What the witnesses said is if they're not going to look beyond this rule, this rule of thumb, we really can't tell if there's adverse impact. And that is why Chair Burroughs and some of the other members of the commission were focusing on it. Well, Savannah, you know, you've done a lot of work around this whole area of validation. And that, again, goes to you guess and its obligations. And what do you think about some of these questions? You know, something that was surprising to me in the hearing was that some of the speakers seem to be suggesting that employers should be required to do validation in instances where there is no disparate impact. Um, and as we've been talking about, that's not something that the guidelines would require. And Validation itself is quite expensive and time-consuming. So I thought that that was very surprising to hear that. Obviously, not all the speakers took that line, but it was of interest to me. So, Leslie, let's move on. So thinking about what's next for the EEOC. So are we likely to see more hearings? Well, I think we will see more hearings. I can't guarantee it. it takes a lot of work to put on a hearing. And actually, this hearing was virtual because the commission and their headquarters had a flood. And so it was a real challenge for them. And it was one of the most highly attended hearings they've ever held. In any event, I think that they will hold another hearing. And I think that they're working towards issuing guidance. But it's unlikely that Chair Burroughs could issue guidance without the third Democratic commissioner of the EEOC being confirmed. And another reason that they will probably hold additional hearings is because of that complaint raised by some of the commissioners that they did not have representatives. One of the questions I had is, I know that, and it was discussed in the hearing, EEOC, I believe it was last year, issued some very good guidance on the ADA and AI. How were they able to issue that guidance without the third commissioner? Well, what they did is they issued it as technical guidance, and the chair has the authority to issue technical guidance. And it was pretty much similar to as the kind of guidance they've had on ADA before, was it not? Yes. So, Savannah, there was this whole interesting conversation between a law professor here in, I happen to be in St. Louis, Washington University, over whether job advertising platforms or job matching platforms might be considered staffing firms. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because that was really fascinating. Yeah, I agree with you. That was a, a Q&A between Professor Kim and Commissioner Lucas, and I found it very interesting. So everyone knows that Title VII covers employers, and of course, it also covers employment agencies, right? But a huge debate in this area is whether you can extend Title VII liability to platforms that provide employers with job candidates. So in this instance, think about LinkedIn. That's a good example. Or whether you can also extend Title VII liability to platforms that provide job advertising, right? By characterizing those types of entities as what we might think of as employment agencies. 
And so Commissioner Lucas was asking Professor Kim, you know, can we extend Title VII to cover those types of technology platforms? And Professor Kim's opinion was that in instances where the platform is doing job matching, that actually, yes, the company would qualify as an employment agency under Title VII but that she was less certain about whether you could extend Title VII liability to just platforms providing job advertising. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Leslie, I think from your perspective, that's probably similar to the kinds of discussions when you were at the commission around some of these issues. Yes, and I think what the commission would love to be able to do is to actually get to the developers and those making, you know, these equipment and these tools. But that is far more difficult. So all they can do is to continue to get out the word that you cannot rely on the folks that are selling you these equipment. You have to ask questions. You have to get behind it just because they say no adverse impact doesn't make it true and it does not leave the employer unprotected. That's no different from the rule what it's always been. Test, you know, we've warned clients for years about listening to testing, saying it's been validated and that type of thing. And employers clearly are going to be held liable if there is adverse impact, regardless of what they were told by the AI experts. Let's switch gears to another topic quickly. Savannah, You are an expert on the new AI law up in New York City, and one of the discussion parts in the hearing had to do with whether employers could be required to provide transparency to applicants and employees around when they're using AI tools, whether it's in hiring, getting applicants, promotion, and so forth, performance, which is apparently the latest area. And also whether there was a whole discussion about third-party bias audits and that type of thing to see whether that was going on. And can you talk a little bit about why that was being discussed in this hearing in relationship to the New York City law? So New York City has a law that regulates what they call automated employment decision tools that, broadly speaking, will cover AI tools. And I think a lot of things in that law are being discussed more broadly as initiatives that could be brought about elsewhere. But just to give some specifics about how the law works, it requires employers to provide job candidates who reside in New York City with notice that they're going to be evaluated by a tool. And in addition to just the pure notice that the tool will be used to evaluate them, they also need to be provided with what the job qualifications and characteristics that the tool will be evaluating or that will be used in the assessment. And the law also has as you were alluding to, mandatory audit provisions, where you have to have a a neutral third party evaluate the tool for disparate impact. It's actually quite onerous, and the results of the audit will additionally need to be posted publicly. So many, I think, are looking to this law to see how audit and transparency obligations might function and to see how New York City does with it. With that in mind, Leslie, are those things that you expect EEOC to add as part of their guidance? They don't really have the authority to do the things the way New York City has done them. In terms of audits, EEOC cannot audit employers, but they do have tools such as commissioner charges and directed investigations where they could go and look behind employers and how they're using the tools in a proactive way without having a member of the public 
file a charge of discrimination. The disability guidance that we talked about a little bit earlier on AI issues does get into some recommendations where they're saying to employers, you should notify the public about what kind of AI you're using and how it impacts applicants and employees in advance so that those with disabilities are aware of it and can figure out whether or not they need accommodations and work with them. So there's also things like that. And obviously, I would expect something like transparency when using AI would be something that the commission would recommend. But in terms of looking behind it, I mean, part of that is the whole purpose of UBS. I mean, that's the validation process already. So in some ways, we already have that, although it is a guideline and not a requirement. Well, I think especially if you think that someone who has a disability, you're going to have to post something that there is AI so that perhaps you're going to have it through the back door is that, you know, you're going to have to post it in order to comply with ADA. So everyone will have the benefit of knowing that AI is going to be used at various stages. So as we close out this discussion, Savannah, we cannot leave without talking about the Institute for Workplace Equality and its extensive report on AI. It's in the TAC, which I'll let you explain the exact title of it, because you spent a lot of time and we were honored to have as the chair of the TAC, Vicki Lipnick. That's right, Nita. To give listeners a little background, I served on the Artificial Intelligence Technical Advisory Committee, which, as Nita said, was created by the Institute for Workplace Equality. And what the committee did was to produce guidelines for the use of artificial intelligence and employment selections. And the group itself was composed of 40 professionals from a variety of backgrounds. So we had lawyers such as myself, but also data scientists and IO psychologists. I would say that the committee was fairly representational of all parts of this ecosystem. So we had lawyers who typically represent plaintiffs and management side attorneys and people who are in-house at vendors and also former government officials like Chair Lipnick. And I think for that reason, the report that we produce, which is available for everyone to read online, is quite robust. I hope that future EEOC hearings kind of take our lead in including a wider variety of, of professionals so that everyone in this area is at the table. And I agree with that. And I just want to say that it was submitted. The Institute did submit the report. It's in the record. And so hopefully it will be looked at. And of course, with Chair Lipnick as leading the charge, hopefully we will get some review of that. Because I think the most important thing is you did have vendors involved, which you did not have today. And I think probably a more balanced group of people. Nevertheless, we're running out of time here. And so we got a couple minutes for final thoughts. Leslie, we're going to let you kick off. What are your final thoughts about the hearing and AI and employment? Well, first of all, my first thought is AI is not going on to the back burner as it had been following the 2016 hearing. And I think the reason for that is because the commission knows it has to deal with it. And secondly, I would expect guidance from the commission on the forfeits rule and maybe some of the other issues we talked about and additional examination. And we won't necessarily hear about it, but we're going to see some investigations of employers 
use of these tools. Savannah, you're next up. <laughs> well, I think I already gave my takeaway. So the horse is a bit out of the barn, but it's just that the EEOC should hold at least an additional hearing and, and bring in a wider variety of stakeholders. I agree with that. And I think my bottom line is, is that employers need to, back to your point, Leslie, need to keep an eye on this and they need to be much more aware of what AI they are using and understand that they're the ones who are going to be held liable for this. And with that, thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you, Leslie and Savannah. And everyone, please join us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or wherever it is that you subscribe to your podcast. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting FortneyScott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.